Welcome to Ahail, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, creators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahail means. It refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. Ahail is freed from the binding understanding of kinship, origin or belief. It's about a culture of being together. Ahali generates a knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So welcome to Ahali Conversations. Our guest for this episode is Stephen Wright. He's a thinker and writer and recently a gardener, as you will find out. He has been co-directing the Document and Contemporary Art program at the European School of Visual Art in France. Stephen is the author of the amazing book titled Toward the Lexicon of Usership, which I highly recommend if you haven't come across it already. Together with Stephen, we discussed how principles of permaculture can translate to cultural practice, the curious coefficient of art, and the mind-boggling story of Raiva Pusan. His call for bringing in a notion of compatibility to replace specificity in contemporary art was highly inspiring. So too were his provocations on usership and art doing. Stephen joined the conversation from an island on the Pacific coast of Canada. We met him together with a group of students of visual arts and curatorial studies from Naba Milano. And together with that group, we have been exploring the possible aftermaths for COVID-19 lockdown, especially with regards to exhibition making. Why are exhibitions still an interesting endeavor? And how can we critically assess ideas around display, especially within this period of confinement? What kind of speculations can be made for the deconfinement in an art institutional context? And to what effect will current discussions around distancing or the somewhat crooked shift to an immediate online presence influence the exhibitions and the practices of institutions in the future? These are the major questions that frame our conversation. I want to say the questions that you're raising right now have got to be the most fascinating and the most um, acute in a certain way with respect to the experience that 3.5 billion people are living together. I mean, I think when I read in Le Monde that three and a half billion people were in confinement, I think that there's almost been never an experience on that kind of a global scale. And what's paradoxical is, of course, we all live it individually with very different circumstances and parameters, but we're all in it together. So the question of public space and what it will become and how this can be shown. I mean, I don't have an answer to any of those questions, but I'm very happy to spend um, some time thinking with you about those. As I mentioned, Stephen is on an island, but how come he ended up there? I'm normally based in France. In fact, recently I've taken up permaculture. So I live on a farm in the south of France, uh, southwest, where I practice permaculture as a kind of an experimental farming practice. But I came here for some visa issues, actually, and I planned to spend uh, two and a half weeks, and that was in February. My return ticket was cancelled, and it looks like I will be here at least for five months. So it turned out to be at least a five-month stay, what was to be a two-week one. I am actually from here, so this is a little cabin that I've that I'm very familiar with. So it's a very privileged place to have to be in confinement. Um, in a certain respect, and at least we do have internet here now. 
So, but I am in kind of familiar but foreign circumstances. And what I intended to be doing this year is simply not happening at all. But I've taken advantage of the time here to also establish a community or start, establish a community garden, a small farming mm-hmm. project. My whole life I was interested until recently in basically hardcore urban questions, living in big cities. And more recently, I've come to take an interest in uh, in permaculture in an expanded sense or in biodiversity in an expanded sense. I was talking about art worlds and um, other art worlds are possible, other art sustaining environments are exhibitions the supreme way for art to instantiate itself in the world? Or are there other art-sustaining environments that are possible? And I found myself using these permaculture metaphors, but I didn't even know what permaculture was. I mean, I sort of had a vague idea, but I certainly didn't know in a tangible sense. So I decided that it was time to invest that metaphor and to go and live inside the metaphor and learn permaculture and actually practice it on the one-to-one scale. If there's one thing that characterizes my thinking around art and art-related practice, it's this question of scale. Not big art or small art, but art that is on a one-to-one scale. In other words, that it is what it is, as well as a proposition of what it is. How can this mode of thinking translate into the moment we are having this conversation, a period of pandemic unclarity? Well, I think because in the end, we will not eradicate this enemy. And we're not in a war, and COVID-19 is not our enemy. It just to use uh, my vocabulary, it's kind of piggybacking on our existence. And our only horizon can possibly be coexistence. We have to find channels of diplomacy to negotiate coexistence with, with COVID, but with all other life forms as well. I mean, whether viruses actually are life forms seems to be a question of debate. But I don't know about you guys, but one thing that I've noticed is that not only have our conversations changed in the last uh, five weeks or... <laughs> since the century changed about five weeks ago, but our readings are different. I'm reading very different things. I'm reading things much more about, well, I already was maybe about vegetal life, about coexistence with other forms of life, and much less about the sort of just traditionally social science in anthropocentric readings that I was looking at in the past century, that is in February. Yeah, I think that conceiving this moment as a timestamp for the turn of the century is brilliant. And stressing the gravity of coexistence resonates with Stephen's engagement in permaculture. After all, permaculture is a practice that considers how various actors, such as plants, climatic factors, and other things, are composed to form totalities, totalities that will work to the best interest of each of those actors, thus searching for means of coexistence. I mean, I think permaculture is usually dismissed by conventional farming theorists and and by industrial agriculture in general as being too small scale. It's okay. It's like, it's okay for you, but you can't feed the population of the earth this way. And I think that's totally backwards. It's upside down. In fact, permaculture has a very all-encompassing kind of view. Permaculture seeks to understand how everything fits into an ecosystem or how ecosystems are embedded in in one another. And that's true for biological ecosystems, but it's also true for cultural ecosystems. And it's not just a metaphor, but uh, if you think about long-term art-sustaining environments, you do have to wonder whether exhibitions have the necessary properties, or in fact, if they are not merely a kind of a byproduct of the display of 
commodities and merchandise from the 19th century. They look very much mm-hmm. like the the grand magasin, the sort of department stores that were invented in the 19th century for the display of art objects, whether those are material or dematerialized objects. Exhibitions are the central way that art as a specific autonomous activity are performed. And I think all of those terms are questioned by a permaculture view of art. You would question whether art is a specific activity, for example. You would say, well, specificity was one of the key words of the of the last uh, 70 years with specific uh, medium specificity and specific objects and site specificity and specific regimes of visibility. All these, these notions of specificity seem to try and focus on the fact that art was something which was absolutely different than any other form of symbolic configuration or activity. I think that's wrong, but I think it at least bears some kind of questioning. And I think the question that is posed in this kind of a circumstance, like with lockdown and deeply compromised public space, confinement and so on, is whether we really want to go back to this idea that art is specific and that exhibitions are the best way to showcase it, or whether we want art to be something compatible, whether we replace specificity with the notion of compatibility, for example. And that would be a permacultural perspective, that the thing about permaculture is you want to find compatible crops. You put roses with grapevines, you put carrots with with onions, and so on. So these are companion crops, and that type of compatibility is much more important to the overall, well, ecosystem than, than the specificity. That whole notion of autonomy that art is an autonomous activity that operates sort of in an unconstrained form, allowing its internal logic to be unfolded. I think that we need to pause here for a minute to underline this proposition, replacing specificity with compatibility. But hasn't the whole fight of modern art been about a certain autonomy? So what is Stephen's take on autonomous art? Well, it's a beautiful idea, but it's one that never existed before modernity. And I wonder if it's one that is able to survive the current circumstances, whether that really is a priority. to. Ha- I mean, certainly autonomous art has produced some wonderful and enriching experience, but at what cost? And is it possible really to sustain that over a longer period? So those are the kind of questions that permaculture as a way of thinking about exhibition making and a way about art making or art doing also really brings to light. And I think probably the one thing I was thinking about what to share with you, one idea that I I wanted to share is that it sort of has been taken for granted throughout modernity that art needed to be somehow performed, that there was this powerful notion of performativity. And you notice, right, that performativity is always seen as a positive value. It's always, when we talk about uh, performing this or performing that, performing gender or performing our subjectivities or performing that, it's always considered to be something very positive, which is a strange idea if you think about it in an attention economy where performing our subjectivities is usually exactly what the um, attention economics is trying to extract from us, extract a kind of surplus experience value I'm talking about Google or Facebook or all of them, that can be sold back to us. So actually, performativity is the name in this economy for the site of surplus value extraction. And I think that really becomes obvious when we can't go out so freely into the world where we are much more glued to our social media, 
uh, to find out what's going on, to stay in touch and so on. And even for more affective purposes, I mean, even how many love affairs are being lived basically over Zoom and uh, FaceTime and so on. So we're really hooked to these things. We're performing in all sorts of ways over them. And that performativity actually is a form of extraction. And that is nowhere more true than in the art world, where this ocean of performativity is taken as an absolutely positive notion. So I was thinking, well, what is the origin of performativity? Where does this come from? And what, what is the other? Of performativity. Well, one way of considering the other is in linguistic theories that the other performativity is competence, right? So you have linguistic competence, in other words, as a natural native speaker of Turkish or English or any language, Italian, you have the capacity to produce speech acts. That is the competence. All native speakers have this competence, but you never need to perform that speech act in order to have that competence. So well, there'll be a lot to say about that. But what if you apply that to the notion of exhibition making? What if you have the competence to conceive of really wonderful display performativity, but you withhold that performativity and you, you maintain it as a competence and instead of performing it, you inject that competence into something else. You make it compatible rather than making it specific. You make it compatible with other types of activities. Well, given the power that exhibitions can have, think of the power that can be injected into those other activities. And I think this becomes, today, this becomes a, a moment of being able to test and to experiment that. Not waiting till the end of deconfinement to test that, but to test it right now. Because when we can't make exhibitions in the same way, right now, we could still inject that exhibition-making competence very powerfully into other things to their great advantage, I would say. So there's going to be a lot to say about that. I don't know if this is a line of inquiry that's interesting to you, but it's a very old inquiry that goes back at least to Aristotle. And Aristotle, in his metaphysics, makes a great deal out of this notion, which he distinguishes two things. He distinguishes uh, what he calls dunamia, which is potentiality, from energia, which we would call performance. So this idea that you could perform something, but in fact, by not performing it, you still would not lose it, is something that has deep um, speculative anchorage in a philosophical tradition. So it's not just something that I made up off the top of my head, is what I'm saying, is that it's something that has been thought about. And I think that we are in a unique set of circumstances to test drive that. So what I'm saying is, I guess you might draw out, is that it's not the end, of course, of exhibition making. Though there's going to be a lot of practical challenges on exhibition making afterwards, of course. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe that is a kind of display culture which has run its course and that, in fact, we could fruitfully imagine other ones. This reminds me of Felix Guattari's take on artistic activity. He says that artistic activity involves aesthetic techniques of rupture and suture, in a sense, consisting of a breaking apart, opening up, and then sewing back together. And in doing so, we can think of artistic activity taking place in totally other contexts. And the example Guattari gives is the classroom. So with regards to artistic activity venturing outside of the art-sustaining environments and seep into life scenarios, one strong example is that of Raiva Pusan. So I invited Stephen to tell us about his take on Pusan. Thank you, John. It's a good example. It's a tangible example. It's funny and it's true. But it's also a way to bridge 
I think the idea of something which is specific to art and something where art escapes, not only escapes the institutional capture, it escapes ontological capture. It escapes performative capture. In other words, it is an example of how art can have a kind of a life in substantively different circumstances. So here's the story. You've probably never heard of this guy, Rivo Pusemp, which is, for me, very strange because I think he is the best example of politicized concept art in North America. So we hear about all the very apolitical ones, which did super interesting work for sure. But Rivo's work strikes me as something else. He was born in Estonia, actually, in a refugee camp in uh, 1942, I think. And he immigrated as a young boy with his mother to the United States, to New York, where he grew up. He went to study art in Salt Lake City, which is in Utah, in the mountains. And it's an anecdote, but I mention this anecdote when I tell the story, is that his best friend in art school in those years in the 1960s was uh, Paul McCarthy, the West Coast conceptualist, who you probably have all heard of, if you're familiar with sort of contemporary art at all. Paul McCarthy is this artist who whose practice is based on um, sort of over-identification, over-identification with art, over-identification with values, this kind of hyperbolic, exaggerated practice. And the funny thing is that his best friend, Rivo Pusemp's work is exactly the converse. It is premised on de-identification with art and with values. Anyways, these guys go to art school together in the 60s. They graduate. They realize there's no future for them in Utah. McCarthy goes back to Los Angeles and has the career that we know. Rivo goes back to New York, and he has immediate success as a young artist, a very young artist, 25 years old. And he's producing art, which is very much in the spirit of those years in the mid-1960s, op art based on quite LSD-inspired work. But uh, he has immediate success. He's in in the very first survey show of land art with artists who are 20 years older than him. Um, he has the best gallery in New York and so on. He, a lot of success. But for him, it's not interesting because it's too easy to obtain. He has a capacity to read somehow what will work, and he fulfills that expectation, and he obtains success. So he decides it's not really very interesting. And one day, when he's walking down the street, apparently, he sees a little sign on a telephone pole that said there's a collective, an art collective that was forming called Museum a collective for living artists. So he calls the guys up and he joins the collective. Actually, and the collective itself is worth talking about. It's not very well known, but it's also quite interesting some of the things that they did. But in any case, his experience of the collective was one of frustration. Why? It's because every time these guys would get together, and I say guys, I there were mostly guys involved. There were some women, but it was largely guy-centric. Anyways, when they would get together and have some beers, the others would all start complaining about the art world and the exhibition structures. And they would say, oh, you know, it's all corrupt and it's all who you know and who you sleep with and, and so on and so on. And he would say, no, that's the weird thing. It's not like that at all. You just do anything and it always works. And they go, no, it's like, that's not like that, Rivo. And he goes, yes, it's like that. You just do. That's the crazy thing about contemporary art. You can do anything and you can get away with it. And they go, well, We don't know who you're sleeping with, but it's certainly not our experience. So that's when he developed his permaculture approach to artistic practice. And he developed something which he calls idea seeding or concept planting. And it works like this. 
somewhere in one of these frustrating conversations, somewhere between the seventh and the eighth beer of the evening, Rivo would sort of slip into the conversation an idea for an artwork that would obtain art world recognition for the person who did it. And his idea was that by that point, probably no one would remember the idea the next morning. But if they did remember the idea, they certainly would not remember where the idea came from. In other words, they would think that it was theirs. And so his idea was this, that if someone took up one of his concept plants or concept um, seedings, produced the work and obtained art world success or recognition, which he could independently verify, then he would consider that his work was done. And his work, of course, was not their work. It was a successful seeding operation. And he says that over a period of two years, he was able to irrefutably document five or six cases in like the specialized art press and so on of successful seedings. So I think, wow, that's a really beautiful idea. It's not the end of the story, huh? but such a beautiful idea. It's sort of like, it could be sort of like a conversation we're having today, right? Is that, I don't know, people are listening, but not listening. People are thinking about other things, but somehow some part of what somebody says gets lodged in somebody else's ear. And maybe someday, somewhere down the road, part of it begins to, to grow. It's like when you eat an apple, right? And you throw the apple core away. Well, there's five seeds in there. And it's always possible that one of those seeds will grow. Usually they don't, but maybe sometimes they do. And maybe sometimes when they do grow, it will produce an apple tree, which will produce beautiful fruit. The chances are small, but it happens. And so it's kind of the way conversation works. It's kind of the way teaching works. And it's definitely the way permaculture works. But anyways, so that's, I think, worth thinking about for a number of reasons. But uh, Rivo stopped doing it after two years. Why did he stop? He stopped because he felt that it was manipulative. I mean, it was. Because he felt that he always knew more about the actions of his friends and colleagues than they could possibly know themselves. And after all, they were his friends, and he did not want to manipulate them, so he stopped doing it. But when he stopped, he asked himself an important question. He said, is there not some realm of human activity where manipulation is acceptable, even necessary? And he said, yes, politics. That's exactly what politics is. I mean, in his understanding of politics. <laughs> politics is not like where an idea spontaneously takes off in the public sphere and all the citizens demand a universal basic wage, for example, or a universal living wage. No, for ideas to take off in a political sphere, someone has to seed them there in the first place. And someone has to nurture them. And usually they die. But if you nurture them and water them and care for them, sometimes they will burgeon. So this is 1973. Rivo Pusemp is living at that time. He's teaching at an art school in upstate New York, and he's living in a town called Rosendale. Well, Rosendale is not a town. It's a village, actually, a very small village. And the village kind of mirrors all the problems that the United States has at that time very similar to the situation today. The society is very divided against itself. And on the one hand, you've got reactionaries like rednecks. And on the other hand, you've got like hippies and they don't talk and they can't work together. And so the village is falling apart. The village is falling apart also because the tax base is too small. So there's potholes in the roads and the water system is contaminated and the sewer system's backing up and the police force is corrupt. So Rivo realizes what really needs to happen in this village is the village needs to be dissolved 
and then amalgamated with a larger municipality. But he knows that's impossible to convince the people to do that because this is one of the first townships in the United States. It was founded in the early 17th century by some of the first uh, European settlers that, that came there. So to say that they want to dissolve it, it would never work. So he decides to run for mayor on a very upbeat campaign. He runs for the mayor of the village by saying, I will fix the police force, the sewer system, the water purification system, the potholes in the roads, and so on and so on. He doesn't mention anything about his real plan. He wins the election, and he starts to do exactly what he said he would do in his election platform. But just like he had done with his idea seeding, in this political moment of his career, he also begins to seed the idea for the dissolution of Rosendale and its amalgamation with larger municipality. And so every chance he gets, he puts the idea out there in a kind of a very discreet way. In two years, he calls a referendum and the idea for the dissolution of the town, which would have been impossible two years earlier, was plebiscited by 73% of the population. The next day, Rivo resigns as mayor and leaves Rosendale forever. He moves to back to Utah, where he continues his practice in an even further below the radar screen, uh, where he continues to work today. So you say, well, wow, that's a really interesting example of political change, but is it art? That's one question that immediately comes to mind. And the second question that comes to mind is, well, okay, but how do you know that story? If he never told anybody that this was an art project, if he never told anybody that him being the mayor was actually a kind of art action, then how can I tell you the story? I mean, where did I learn it? So the answer to the second question is that Rival actually did tell two people about this. One was his wife. I don't think she really cared one way or the other. And the other person was Paul McCarthy. He told Paul McCarthy that he was doing this while he was doing it, when McCarthy was there visiting. So get this, McCarthy was furious. And that, it's really interesting, right? McCarthy was furious for political reasons. He goes, that's bullshit, Rivo, bullshit. If you want to do politics, then you have to do it in the public sphere. You have to do it publicly. You have to do it proudly. And you have to say that's what it is. You have to be right out there and up front. And Rivo, I guess, must have said, well, Paul, if politics like that would work, we would know it by now, right? If that kind of political art was successful, we would know that. Clearly, even at that moment, Rivo did not believe at all in exhibition making as a politically potent artistic tool. So they disagreed on that. And there you see the disagreement between disidentification and over-identification, starkly portrayed. Anyhow, five years later, in 1980, I guess, the two friends met again and McCarthy said, hey, Rivo, remember that crazy thing you did back in Rosendale? you know, where you became mayor as an art project and then you dissolved the town. And he goes, don't you think that, uh, literally he apparently said this, don't you think that grad students would want to know about this and talk about it? Isn't that important that it be part of the conversation? And he said, and you know, I've started this uh, art publishing house called Highland Press in Los Angeles and we could like publish something about it. And so Rivo said, yeah, well, you know, when I was mayor, of course I kept all the press clippings and the correspondence and so on. So they put together a publication, which they, I think they published all of 50 copies of, called Beyond Art, The Dissolution of Rosendale, New York, a public project by, uh, by Rivo Pusemp. 
So that publication, which includes all the documentation, about 48 pages of documentation, never uses the word art once, is the kind of source that we have for this particular action. So that document itself becomes like an exhibition in a way, right? It becomes the springboard for publication or bringing back into the public sphere under different auspices that action. So in a way, you could say that publication, I mean, has a very unusual status. It transforms the ontological status, if you want to talk like a philosopher, of what he was doing. It changes its being. Instead of what he was doing was purely a political act uh, with strange outcomes, it takes on a double ontology or a secondary ontology as an artistic action. Or perhaps that's what it does. Because let's come back to the first question, right? Is that, okay, so this is like a interesting story, but is it art? Well, I've just been arguing, yes, that it was art, right? But I think it's more interesting to take the other side, is to say, yeah, you know what? You're right. It's not art. It wasn't art. It was never art, actually. And it doesn't become art just because there's a document that performs it as art. In fact, it's more interesting than that. It's something which, although it itself is not art, owes its conditions of possibility to art. So without art, it would not have been possible, although it itself was not art. You could say that its coefficient of art becomes very high when someone tells you how this actually happened. But if they don't tell you that, then its coefficient of art remains extremely low. So ultimately, you would have to say that it's not not art. That kind of status is the essence. It cuts to the quick, basically, of what I've been arguing about injecting competence into and injecting art into other types of activities and about making artistic competence compatible with those activities rather than making it something which is itself specific. And in another way, I think that, well, he did that in the mid-late 1970s, but actually I think that it was kind of ahead of its time. I think that it was a kind of a precursor for a situation which has now becomes the condition of art, particularly in our corona scene moment, where this new lease on, on life that art can have, and through a lens of exhibition making, but perhaps with, we could say it's not, not exhibition making, it becomes a way for art to actually live up to a kind of potential or use value, as John was saying, which had thwarted it before, where it was very good art, perhaps, but it did not have the kind of social traction and political traction which it both aspired to and laid claim to. What about the question of use? Stephen's book, Toward the Lexicon on Usership, is a work that lays the ground for most of the things we are discussing today. What is his take on use and use value, and how do they relate to such practices? The notion of use, of course, is, is key. But to be honest, my personal research has focused, as the title of that book suggests, on usership and not on use itself. Because use is uh, such a difficult notion to define and to cope with that I was more interested in talking about the category of relationality with things, with goods, with services, with communities, with tools, with words, and so on rather than saying, well, this word is more useful than this word, or this, a hammer is more useful than a screwdriver, to talk about the category of relationality, the category of usership. And one thing that's always 
troubled me about exhibitions in the modernist paradigm is that they have tended to mirror this exigency that art be premised on some kind of fundamental, not uselessness, but that its use would be this uselessness, uh, that it would have a kind of purposeless purpose. And so that makes it possible to repurpose exhibitions. And of course, I'm the first to always to call for greater use value and to challenge the the fact that so often things are reduced to their exchange value alone or their surplus values. But it is really challenging to imagine use values which are not linked to a form of instrumentalization, which makes it very close to like a kind of propaganda, which is why I think it's more, in a sense, useful to repurpose something which had such a strange purpose, if you see what I mean. That repurposing got me thinking about inhabiting other fields or disciplines. A close kin is obviously in design, especially since we are talking about designated use versus usership. So I asked Stephen about his take on social practices or the so-called practices of social design and perhaps design activism. I think perhaps this is the most fascinating and dynamic sector, but it also points to a paradox that I was um, alluding to around your question about use and use value, is that the assumption for this kind of social design is that it is possible to design something in a more user-friendly way, in a more user-oriented way. And yet the paradox is that what makes usership interesting and powerful and corrosive as a category of subjectivity and relationality is that usership does not behave in the way that experts want it to. It never does. If it did, then it becomes passive and it's not interesting as a category. And so to design something for usership is a kind of, if it's not a contradiction in terms, it is definitely a huge paradox because it almost deprives usership itself of its agency. Of course, it doesn't, but it is a strange attempt to empower it. And that empowerment dialectically is a kind of thwarting of what's great about usership and also what's dangerous about usership. Usership is a very double-edged sword. Do you see what I mean? I'm trying to find an example where this grasp on prescribing the user is not so evident, or at least a design work that operates more similar to artistic activity, but somehow I cannot. Well, maybe I can give you an example. Of course, I've been looking for to follow up on the rival Pusemp example. It's not so much design, perhaps it comes from art, but it is a kind of social design. There's a, a younger... Los Angeles and Milwaukee-based artist called Sarah Delayden in the United States, who works what she calls on the poetics of real estate deeds. So a real estate deed, of course, is the title, the official document that engages ownership and conditions of tenantship. So when you rent or when you own property. So Sarah comes from social practice and concept art, But she works particularly in Milwaukee in quite uh, impoverished neighborhoods. But Milwaukee, like many of the Midwest cities, part of the Rust Belt. So it's been devastated by um, unemployment and deindustrialization and so on. So there's a lot of available housing stock. And so she works with local communities to acquire housing stock, both for 
artist studios, but primarily for living spaces. So oftentimes reclaiming huge industrial buildings and transforming them into housing projects or blocks of abandoned houses and having them refurbished and so on. But she does it with the understanding of an artist. So what she does is works on the actual terms of the contract. You could say lawyers work on that too, but she works on it in a very different way with a very different conceptual vocabulary and injects or attempts, and successfully in many cases, attempts to put in clauses and notions in those contracts, which are substantively different and even at odds with the usual legal sorts of contracts. So actually giving very different kinds of legal rights to creating a very different type of legal design about what it means to reclaim these properties. So she's kind of working, I think, as she would describe it, within the jaws of the shark in a certain way, but operating as a kind of a secret agent in a certain way. She's perceived from the outside as being a social activist, but her self-understanding is that of an artist and using those artistic tools, not to do artwork, but to embed it in this type of practice. One common thread in these practices seems to be camouflage, along with a sense of infiltration and double agency. So what does Stephen make of this notion? Do these works involve camouflage? Yeah, camouflage is definitely the way to, to describe it. But then we could think, how does this camouflage work? Because these people are extremely visible. It's not like we don't see them at all. Mm-hmm. It's just that we don't see them entirely in the auspices of their agency. So in a way, they're like double agents in a way. They're like spies. They operate on the same physical landscape, but they are also operating in a different ontological landscape if you want to use those kinds of terms. Mm -hmm. But then you could always say, and I think that they would say, well, that's true and not true because you never really need to know that they were operating as artists because it's never actually performed as art per se. And so the camouflage we're talking about doesn't necessarily imply a double ontology. That would be one way to understand camouflage. I think that's the typical understanding of camouflage is that Something looks like something, but it is something else. And in this case, it's not just an illusion of appearance, like in illusionism. They look exactly the same. So their difference is merely ontological. That would be standard philosophical description. Like the difference between Duchamp's urinal and the other, the real urinal, is that one is the mere real thing. So the difference is merely ontological. That's the kind of strange camouflage which has been premised on over the past century. But I think it's more interesting, again, to say that, in fact, it's not... (laughs) There's a coefficient of camouflage, I would say. And so that the coefficient is variable uh, according to who's looking and under what circumstances. For me, that's not a minor point. That is actually a way for art to break from the paradigm of the 20th century, which was an ontological paradigm, that art was an ontological problem. From, at least from Duchamp until for 100 years, art was considered to be kind of an ontological question. It was not a question of beauty. Those became subsidiary questions. It took on this notion of having an, a specific ontology. And I think this moment of deontologization, which is really what I'm talking about, only becomes possible if you can find an alternative to describing art in ontological terms. I mean, the ontological descriptor works perfectly. 
And you can explain all of exhibition making and justify it and legitimate it in those terms. But you would need to find something else. And I think this notion, which I also take from uh, Duchamp in a different way, of a coefficient of art really allows things to move ahead in a totally different paradigm. Then what about intention and intentionality? Probably intention is the most blunt basis of any conversation around contemporary art. Does intentionality still have a role in constituting that coefficient of art? Yes, it does. You're right. And I think that's one of the major lessons which I take away from permaculture is that one of the major, I mean, when we talk about real like permaculture working with uh, plant organisms is a real interest in plant thinking. So first of all, to think like a plant is to break with intentionality. In fact, it's something like conscious non-intentionality or non-intentional consciousness. But it is in any case to, to leave aside that question of intentionality or else if you don't, if you don't do that, and it's one of the real challenges, I think, practical challenges, but also theoretical challenges for permaculture, is that if you don't, you continue with an, an anthropocentric notion of agriculture, which is the opposite of permaculture. It's imperative to see that merely because plants are not conscious, that they lack intentionality, and merely because animals, let's say, lack intentionality in some respect, they are not conscious. Those defining characteristics of the anthropocentric worldview need mm -hmm. to be discarded. So that raises a question about art, then you say, well, then you could say, well, from a planetary systems perspective, what is the function of art? Like we think that the function of art is perhaps our supreme expression of our inner feelings and uh, that which is most refined in humans and so on. Uh, but it may be nothing to do with that at all. We may actually be the unwilling executors of a different project that actually, from a planetary systems perspective, there may be a need for art that we have not grasped as a kind of, let's say, a catalyst in a situation of a kind of disparate parts. I mean, you can't really speculate, or I can't at this point, but I know that from a permaculture perspective, that's why coming back to this idea that it's not a small perspective, it's a very, very all-encompassing one, is that art must have some kind of function within the broader cultural ecosystem. So simply because it exists, or because we've come to practice it on many different ways, that it must have a meaning, even if it's beyond the way societies have conceived and attributed or even articulated the value around it. Yes, it does exist, and we may think, oh, well, we don't need it. But I mean, that's what we thought about wolves. And then we eliminated them. And then we realized that actually they had a function, which was not merely to eat sheep. And hopefully we could come to understand the function of art in a broader ecosystem without eliminating it to check yeah. it. I keep feeling I'm stuck in the past century. But this reminds me of Georges Bataille and his call for a general economy. His proposal was an idea of economics that actually incorporates getting drunk, writing poems, and such other marginalized human activity. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think that Bataille was really at home in his century, to be honest. You know, I think that the notion of a general economy interested some people. It never interested any economists. And perhaps if we could expand it to a notion of a general ecology. And so we close on that note. Another thought that's worth reflecting on further. General ecology. Stephen Wright has given us so many trigger points, from challenging the notions of art that were put in place only in the last century as being an autonomous mode of action, 
and preferably as objects that can be displayed under an illusion of detachment, to his questioning of specificity, and instead calling for a compatibility with the world, a permacultural take on art-sustaining environments that will not dismantle the coefficient of art, but perhaps allow it to change our lives. Mm-hmm.